poses the question, who orders our lives? Who is in charge and who gives us help when we need it? Now, over the centuries, humans have always asked this, this one question. Who orders our lives? Who's in charge? Um, and it's one of those big questions that keeps getting asked because essentially humans have not changed in the last thousands of years. The question has not uh, uh, changed, but the way we have answered it has changed. When the psalm was written well over 2,000 years ago, people in the ancient Near Eastern culture understood that there were many gods in the ancient world, and they were the ones who were in charge. They were the ones who ordered everything. They were the ones who had the power to help. And mere humans were the slave force of these gods. And to look for help, whether it was because you had a sick child or a failing crop or you had relationship strife, um, looking for help involved people going to the gods, offering sacrifices to them on the high places and in the hope that they would be heard. And of course, you needed to cover your bases, didn't you? Because you didn't know which god was going to hear you and you had to preferably cover them all in your bases with all of your offerings. Centuries later, the power shifted. The power to who orders our lives and who's in charge and who can therefore help us when we need help shifted. It became the power of the spirits in the enchanted world that we believed we lived in. There were spirits behind every rock, every tree. They were both good spirits and bad spirits. And the world was an enchanted place. There were many things to be feared. The spirits held the power. and They were in charge of this world. And I found this um, rather insightful uh, kind of insight of this time in history. The pre-enlightenment world was simultaneously both fascinating and frightening. People had no choice often but to rely on their imaginations to make sense of the myriad phenomena around them. The result was the world was where everything seemed magical, a place teeming with angels and demons, fairies and witches, and only through uncanny and sometimes ridiculous superstitions did many people... Uh, uh, did many people of the Dark Ages, or Middle Ages, or medieval period, in Europe try to make sense of their world? Who's glad they didn't live then? <laughs> so that was the next shift. Then the next shift happened. The power shifted again towards the kings and the queens, who were believed to have the power to heal. It was believed that a touch from a royal would cure some particular conditions. Uh, and there were huge ceremonies where people would line up with this particular disease to be touched by the king or to be handed a, hand, a blessed touch piece, which they would then hang around their necks in order to believe that they would be healed. The next tier down of power were the rich, the feudal landowners. They were the ones who ordered people's lives. They were in charge, and everyone else was a peasant at their mercy. If someone needed help, they needed to beg for help from their lord or their master. And then with, of course, the rise of modern science, the answer changed again. Who's in charge? Who orders our lives and who gives us help? Well, science told us that the world is material matter. There is no God or deity behind it. We are ordered by the universal laws of physics and we are here by chance. Therefore, we must be in charge. If we need help, we look to science and to ourselves where we will be able to find answers that we need for, for whatever we are facing. In contrast to all of these varying views, of course, over the centuries, as Christians... We believe that the same God who is written about in this psalm, <clears throat> Psalm 121, is the holder of our lives. He's the one who's in control, and he's the one who is our help. The church has always believed this, alongside the many changing answers 
that have shifted and changed with culture. And as Christians today, this answer of God as being the one who's in charge is completely countercultural, isn't it? To the way that most people believe the answer lies to this question. We are bombarded with messages that tell us we are the author of our destiny. We are the ones who are in charge of our future. We should write our own future. We can create ourselves to be whatever we want to be, whoever we want to be. We don't need to look anywhere else for help. We find it within ourselves if we just search hard enough. And then we even begin to ditch the science too. We are more directed now by our feelings and our inner desires than ever before. And yet when we set out with this task to create our own identities, it's hugely exhausting. To be the author of our destiny is a very daunting task, especially for the younger generation, because we never actually do it in a vacuum. We think we are autonomous, but we're actually at the whim of everything around us. We're at the whim of the culture of the day. We're told we need to be unique to fit in, but we also need to be different. We need to not be too different, though, because then you're looking a bit weird. The trend is constantly changing, and it's exhausting trying to keep up. And when we finally arrive at where we think we're supposed to be, the culture changes again. And then we're like, oh, we've got to change all over again. Or we get there, we get to the peak of where we think life is going to be, and we feel really let down because life is not what we expected. It doesn't feel as fulfilling as we thought it would. If we feel lost and confused, but we're told that help is within ourselves, what happens when we feel upside down inside? What happens when we feel like we're falling apart and we have no internal compass? Where do we find help then? It's no wonder we find ourselves with a largely anxious, depressed generation. Our suicide and our mental health rates are so high, higher than ever before. The author of this psalm speaks to the same question. Who is in charge? And who orders our lives? Where do we find help for life? And he starts in verse 1 with this question, I lift my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from? As I said before, in that day, there were believed to be many gods in the high places, and the mountains were the dwelling places. The mountains were where the sacrifices were offered to the gods. But David here, well, the author we presume is David, says, we... um, No, my help doesn't come from them. My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. And this is how he answers that question that we all ask. In this statement, he declares that God, Yahweh, is the one who's in control. He is the one who is our help. Or better translated from the original language, he is our deliverer. The mountains are simply the creation of his God. They're not the house of the divine, nor the source of his help. They're not not where he will go to get help. He will not sacrifice to the gods in the high places. He finds his source of God, of help in God alone. Well, what do we see of this God and his help? Verse 3, have a look. He will not let your foot slip. He is reliable, he is dependable and faithful. He who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Now, these verses explain the consistency of the help and deliverance that this God provides. His God does not need rest or sleep. He does not get exhausted or run out of resources. His God is faithful and reliable to watch over his life with consistency, with infinite power and energy. He doesn't run out of energy or sleep. And the other ancient gods of Babylon did need to sleep. 
They needed to uh, regain their energy overnight. They were only available during office hours. They were mean and they were angry. They threw tempers if they didn't get the right offerings. They did let the feet of their worshippers slip. They certainly didn't offer any friendship or love towards mankind. But this God of Psalm 121 takes such an interest in those who seek his help and deliverance, those who call him their God, that he watches and he takes an interest in every part of their lives. He watches over his people. Verse 5, the Lord watches over you. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun will not harm you by day, nor the moon by night. This sounds a bit strange, doesn't it? The sun harming you by day or the moon at night. Ancient context, again, helps us to understand the reference to this possibility of the sun harming by day and the moon at night. And we understand this reference refers to the fear of the ancient gods. The sun was considered to be a god, and so was the moon. So they were therefore feared by the ancient people. But in here we see that actually these are just another part of God's good creation, not to be worshipped or to be feared. But you know the real crunch of this passage comes in verse 5 with a strange metaphor of God as shade. So the crunch of this metaphor of this metaphor comes in verse 5 with God being described as a shade. The author declares that the Lord is your shade at your right hand. What does this mean? A shade is a protector. And in this context, the author is saying that God is the shade from the burning heat of the sun. The sun is not a god. It's simply a boiling ball of gas, a burning ball of gas in space. But it is harmful to us, as we know. For those of you who have been sunburnt, you'll know that it does hurt. hurt. And mum has just been in Israel, and she said this heat is absolutely scorching. If you don't have enough shade or water, you literally melt. The Lord here is providing shelter and shade from that heat. And I don't know if it strikes you as odd, but let's just think about this for, the, for a moment in the ancient context. In the ancient world, the servants were the ones who would hold the shade for the rulers and the kings. Here's a picture of an ancient relief of the servants holding the shade for the, um, the king. This is the invention of the umbrella, by the way, in case you were wondering. Um, they would stand in the blister, the servants would be the ones standing in the blistering heat, providing protection for the king. What happens to something that is a protection from the sun? It fades, it gets affected by the UV, and it eventually perishes. So that whatever is protected is being kept from harm. Uh, outdoor f- covers on furniture fade and break apart because they're easily replaceable, uh, and they protect what's what they're covering, which is not as easily replaceable. The servants are easily replaceable as they provide protection for the king. <clears throat> now, what do we see in this psalm? God himself is our shade. He is the one who shelters us, not us providing shelter for him as servants, but he himself is sheltering us, preserving our lives. This is the upside-down kingdom the nature of our servant king. One who would cover us with himself to protect and preserve our lives. Our king who would expose himself to the elements of death and destruction, spread out on the cross, absorbing all the evil meant for us, his own life being consumed 
so that we would not perish and so that our lives would be preserved. This is the nature of our God. And an understanding of this, this nature of God, leads to the conclusion in verses 7 and 8. The Lord will keep you from all harm. He will watch over your life. The Lord will watch over your coming and your going, both now and forevermore. The Lord will keep you from harm is better translated uh, from the original Hebrew as he will keep you from all evil. The Lord will keep you from evil. He will watch and deliver your soul. And this is what we see when the Lord is our shade. This is what we see as he protects and preserves our life for eternity. When we choose him to be our protector and our shade and our help. He has preserved our life as he's hung on the cross for us, securing our eternal future with him. But we all have this choice to make, don't we? Will we follow him? Will we allow him to be our shelter and our shade? Or will we follow the shifting sands of culture and construct our own shelters, which will never last? When we answer this timeless question of who is in charge and where do we find help, with When we answer that with ourselves, it's exhausting because we're in charge of our lives and it's just so exhausting. But when we choose God to be our helper and our protector, we realize that we are actually his children and all of the effort and the striving fades away. This is the Christian conviction and hope that has been written down uh, in this psalm here. We don't have to create our own identity. We, we are given it. We are the beloved children of God. And our worth is infinite because he loves us and he shows us this grace. Our value is determined or a value of something is determined by what someone is willing to pay for it, right? And so our value is demonstrated by the fact that our God and King perished for us as our shade so that we can live. It's clear that the author of this psalm looks forward to a life after death with the declaration that the Lord will watch over his soul forevermore, looking forward to the renewed heaven and earth that we see in Revelation. When we stop trying to be the author of our own lives and instead try to recognize the Lord as our savior and as our help, we can look forward to this life to come. As I close and as we move into communion, let's ask ourselves some questions to check the reality of our lives and how are we doing in terms of seeking the Lord as our help and as our shade. So I invite you to close your eyes and just have a little think about these questions as I ask you. What are you allowing to give your life value? Is it your work? Is it your relationship status? Is it the behaviour or the success of your children? Is it how successful you feel your life has been? When things feel uncertain, where do you go for help? Do you bury yourself in work to ignore the problem? Do you try to cheer yourself up with a new toy, a new experience, with alcohol, pornography? We always need reminding that it is the Lord alone who can be our help. The Lord alone can lift our heads and our hearts when we are struggling. Yes, he gives us friends and family and the wonderful things in life to enjoy, but they can never be the source of our help or our identity. The other night I was feeling really uh, discouraged about a few things in life, Um, and as I was chatting with Graham on the couch, I remembered 
we're told to praise the Lord when we are feeling, uh, well, we're told to praise the Lord all the time, but especially when we're feeling down and discouraged. So I asked him if he could go and get his guitar, and we sat and we worshipped together. And I did not feel like doing it. In fact, the first song, I couldn't actually sing the words. I could only hum. Um, But as we did, as we sung a few songs together, I felt my spirit being lifted as I um, began to lift the name of Jesus above my circumstance and above my feelings, my perspective shifted and my feelings um, changed as well. And my heart was, was um, edified as I edified the Lord. And that's what we do when we come to worship the Lord together. It's what we do when we're feeling down and instead of going to those quick fixes, instead of picking up our phone and scrolling because that really just makes us feel worse, when we put on some music and worship, we're actually lifting the name of the Lord um, higher than everything that we're feeling and going through. This is what it means to seek the help of the Lord. It's what we do when we pick up the Psalms. If we don't know what to pray, if we don't have words for how we're feeling, we pick up the Psalms and we read the words out loud. We're declaring the voice of we're declaring the voice of the Lord through Scripture, and we are lifting Him above our feelings. Let's just pray as we. Uh, move into communion. Father, we thank you that you are our shade. Lord, you are our help. You are reliable, you are dependable, you are faithful. And you stretched out on that cross to protect us. You took everything upon yourself so that we would be protected, so that we would have our lives preserved. And Lord, the only fitting way for us to respond to that sacrifice is to give our lives back to you, is to give our lives in worship and praise and honour of you and who you are and to point others to you. So Father, as we sing this song, remembering of your great sacrifice, and as we move into a time of communion, help us to physically remember as we take the bread and the wine, who you are and what you've done for us so that we can live, so that our lives are preserved.